Small Brains, Big Dreams is a podcast created by the Newborn Brain Society in partnership with the Canadian Premature Babies Foundation. The Newborn Brain Society is a nonprofit organization supporting a world in which all newborns have access to and receive the optimal brain care. We promote international, multidisciplinary collaboration, education, and innovation among clinicians, scientists, and parents. Preemie parent and journalist Jenna Morton is the host of this series, focusing on the role mentorship plays within this discipline. Small Brains, Big Dreams is a podcast for aspiring and early career neurologists. We hear from some of the world's most respected researchers about their journey in the field. Our guest for this episode is Dr. Terry Inder. Dr. Inder is chair of the Department of Pediatric Newborn Medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Massachusetts and the Mary Ellen Avery Professor of Pediatrics in the field of newborn medicine at Harvard Medical. She's a dual-boarded neonatologist and child neurologist. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here and have this privilege to share. Well, I know everyone is anxious to hear all about your journey. Let's start at the very beginning. I would love to know what brought you into medicine and into neurology in infants. Yes, so I have had the experience that life is a serendipitous journey. And I grew up a native New Zealander. Uh, my father had many different occupations, um, including principally being a land developer and builder. And my mother, unfortunately, didn't finish high school because she needed to leave and work to support her family. So we didn't have a lot of experience with college or professions, but I was very inspired by my family doctor. My family doctor took care of us all. He delivered us and cared for me even into my years in university. And he was the kind of family doctor whose practice was attached to his home and who did home visits when all four of us were sick at home as children and I always remember his, his intellect, his skill, and his kindness. Um, and those things really inspired me, that I could apply things that I loved, which was science and math, to do good for other humans. So that was why medicine. I was very focused on, on wanting to make it into medical school, which was challenging in New Zealand, as we only had two medical schools and they were very limited number of places but I worked very hard in high school and was fortunate to gain acceptance did my medical training in New Zealand and really wanted to be like him a family doctor until my sixth year when I realized I did six months of rotations in family medicine and although to this day I'm inspired by people who work in family medicine I found that I started running half marathons and doing other things and just couldn't quite get my my fix. Contrary to that, uh, I really felt inspired by pediatrics because the children didn't really know the sick role. They had all the diseases and many unique features of them that adults had. And yet getting down on the floor with a toddler just was so refreshing in terms of uh, the way we could care uh, for each other. 
So I, uh, I was taken into a pediatric residency and, um, and while I was doing that in a very small hospital in the deep south of New Zealand, half of our time we spent in the neonatal intensive care unit. And this included the time prior to surfactant when the babies were really very, very sick and fighting for their lives as, as they do now. But um, we had to spend a lot of time and do a lot of procedures and manage a lot of applied physiology. And at the same time, a lot of human compassion because there was a lot of losses. And I was inspired by that, applying knowledge, doing procedures, and still carrying forward a humanistic art to medicine. And that's why I ended up then deciding to go into neonatology. During that time, I found out, uh, surprisingly, I was pregnant with my first daughter. (laughs) And uh, I wanted to work part-time, which wasn't feasible. So my mentor at the time in pediatrics said, well, why don't you do some research? And I was like, no, 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 that's not me. I'm a clinician. I don't really want to do any of that. And he was like, well, you could work part-time and you could do a little bit of time in the hospital as well. So I applied for a full-time research fellowship, got it, and then did it, then said, could I change it to being over a longer period part-time? And they agreed. So I undertook my PhD in trying to understand the role of free radicals and diseases in the newborn, uh, particularly the preterm. During that time, I became fascinated with brain injury. And uh, principally, as of most things in my life, that influenced by human experience. And I had an old friend from high school whose family uh, had a very preterm baby who developed very severe white matter injury. And that baby, um, you know, I looked at and I was like, why don't we know what to do to prevent this? Why don't, why don't we know what to, what to do to make you better? Um, so I read Dr. Volpe's book back to back and decided I needed to know more. Um, so I, I, I called him up to see that I could come and train. And and he said, well, in America, we have this thing called residency and you'd have to come and do that. So I'd completed pediatrics, neonatology, done a PhD and done a chief resident year. And I decided I would come and do another residency. So I came to Boston for three years with two children by then. And uh, we were here for three years, which I certainly don't regret uh, training in child neurology formally alongside amazing other people in my program. And that was how it all started. It wasn't a master plan uh, from the time I could speak. It really evolved by seeing opportunities, experiencing uh, what I think is the most important thing we can all find, which is our purpose. And um, through these experiences, I found that I had a purpose. I think that's so powerful for people to hear that it's not a straight path and a line that you can see until you've done it. And then you can connect all those pieces. That's correct. And I think you have to have an open heart and mind to be able to really um, experience and listen to what, to what you are hearing yourself tell yourself about where you're meant to be and why. And you can have, great practical reasons 
for why you should be taking a different pathway. But if your heart and your mind are telling you that this is where you're meant to go, then I think it's very important you listen because it is a demanding profession. It is a commitment. It occupies more than the standard working hours in our lives. And that's a privilege. Um, but it's also, you know, something you need to be mindful of. I'm wondering if you could speak a bit to that in terms of how you how you find that balance and how you keep the passion alive for the work without it overwhelming your passion for the rest of your life. So I don't know that I've always managed that perfectly. So <laughs> I definitely know more than I did in my earlier years now. And I'm a lot... Uh, kinder to myself I think you know the one thing that uh, defines a lot of the people I work with who are high achievers is an element of perfectionism which I certainly could relate to and along with that comes um, extraordinary success sometimes because it's accompanied by a drive um, to always do more be more Um, however it comes with a cost and if you can find a way to be a little uh, more self-compassionate as we are compassionate to others, well, uh, if we're self-compassionate and accept ourselves that we can only do what we can do and that maintaining um, ourselves as a whole human and that means nurturing all aspects of our lives, including, you know, the the important parts of our life outside of work um, and the important relationships we have outside of work and inside of work, then we can be, uh, we can be a more complete person in every domain. And my experience is certainly now in these last few years that my leadership and my, uh, my ability to be more flexible and, and more, more supportive more understanding has has been enhanced because I've learned how to do that to myself. When you're working with younger clinicians now and younger researchers, what are some of the the messages and some of the the lessons that you're trying to pass on? So I think um, I had the privilege of giving the commencement address to my medical school a few years ago. And I thought a lot about this actually, um, Jenna, in terms of what was, because Fundamentally, you walk away from, if you're awake during those commencement addresses, you walk away with maybe one or two words. And maybe any lecture we listen to, we walk away with only one or two words. So I tried to make it simple for them, and I gave them three words that all began with the same letter, which was P. And one of them was was, was purpose or passion. People often will call it passion. I, I, I also have passion. However, I recognize the difference between purpose and passion and that passion for me often has a lot of emotional overtones that I have to recognize. And um, that purpose is a little bit more balanced for me. But whichever way you wish to define it, it's really important you find that um, in the aspect of work that you're doing because we have the privilege of having an occupation where we can go in every day excited and pleased to be where we are and have the opportunity to make a difference whether it's one patient and their family that we're seeing in a clinic 
or whether it's a bench research discovery or whether it's the 10 bench experiments that went wrong. All of them are still informing and helping move things forward. And that's a tremendous privilege we have. So find your purpose, find what excites you so that you have the privilege to live it. And then you'll, um, you'll be really blessed. The second is, is people. That's, to me, probably the biggest P. Uh, as we go through life, people are the most important thing in our lives. And whether it be the immediate connections with your family, with your friends, you know, your high school friends, your college friends, whoever, also the, the friends in our field. I think uh, particularly during this period of COVID, we've realized how much this isolation or lack of connectivity affects us because we fundamentally thrive on these connections. And it's the same for me in, the, in our professional lives that by far the best part of going to any scientific meeting isn't actually the science. It's being able to be with people from all around the country, all around the world, who you've got to know and get excited about things. And it's not a competition about whose lab's going to find the right answer. It's the fact we're all helping each other to make the world a little better. And we can have fun together doing it, whether it's just at that conference dance floor or whether it's connecting and supporting each other. It's a lifelong journey and the people are the things that matter. So being able to be grateful to the people around you. Mentorship is key in that. And the people who mentor you are one of those sets of key people in your life because they will they will greatly influence how you view decisions and how you're guided. So finding effective mentors and, and using them. Don't just name them and not use them. Call them up, talk to them. If they're good mentors, they won't give you the answer. They'll merely spend time with you, knowing you, and reflecting with you on their experiences. Because even what you are doing in this podcast, this aspect of telling your story and sharing your story, is very powerful because it's person and it's people. And then the final P is pride. As I've said, we're hard on ourselves and being able to have pride in what you do. You know, our field, whether it's child neurology or neonatology or neuroradiology, because I have the privilege of walking in three fields. You know, what we do, you know, does make a difference to all the lives we touch. And we should be proud of ourselves for that. At the same time, I'm not talking about ego. I'm talking about a sense of worth that you can carry forward and share and teach others. So those are my three words of advice, purpose, people, and pride. What a beautiful message. <laughs> Thank you. I think that just, it, it encapsulates so much for, for any profession really, but especially for, for the work you're doing. I'm wondering when you talk about, you know, finding a mentor and, and making sure that you use that mentor, can you give people a little bit more guidance on and how to do that. How do you find that mentor that is going to be the right fit for you? I hope you have more than one. I hope you have many mentors. 
and they will serve different needs at different times in life. I have the privilege of still having Dr. Volpe, who I came to train with as a key scientific mentor. But to be honest, you know, his strength is not in balancing raising uh, children and, and, and undertaking a career and, and some of the other aspects that, that women in medicine have to deal with. And that's okay, because I have other mentors that I can turn to for that. For me, I think it, it is about what you wish to define the nature of the relationship as. And in any relationship, you have to have a little bit of courage first to reach out and, and, and ask. You know, if you think about it like dating, you've got to make that reach out and say, could we meet? And what I advise a lot of people to do, and I think people underutilize this, and this is what you're doing in a formal way, is to, is to make time to go and meet with senior people, very senior people sometimes. Maybe it's a dean. Maybe it's your chair of your department or a, a director of an institute. Ask them if they'd have time for 45 minutes to meet with you and that you'd really like to have their advice. There's absolutely no way a good senior person will not say, of course, it might take a little time to get on their calendar, but that's okay. You're not in a hurry. Go meet them and, and sit with them and, and talk to them. Ask them about their journey. Ask them about you, that you really want to understand what their journey in, in their career was like. And they may give you tidbits along the way about what they've learned just as they're telling it. Or otherwise I find useful at the end is to say, that's, a, that's amazing. Your journey is very different because it often will be than what I thought it was and you'll learn from that. What do you know now that you'd wish you'd known 20 years ago? And see what they say. And then if you do have some specific guidance you're looking for, you might say something like, I'm at this crossroads as I think about my career, balancing my clinical pathway, my scientific pathway. I'm also being given more leadership and administrative opportunity. And I'm unclear how to think about these things. Do you have any advice? And, and if you've spent time with someone like that, um, and at any level, you get a feel for how they, how they think. And if you can relate to the way they process things, then often you'll see and feel a fit. And if it feels like it, most of the time it won't feel like a good fit. That's the other thing. Don't get expectations. Most of the time you'll be like, wow, this guy is pretty self-focused in terms of where or she or, you know, and it won't feel like a fit. And that's okay. You know, you've learned something and you've learned from that experience. But then one day it will. There will be somebody that it will feel like it's a fit. And then say to them, you know, would it be possible for me to meet with you again maybe in a month or two to follow up and kind of test it out? It's like dating. Test it out for a few test runs. And if it feels right after a couple of meetings, then maybe you could say, I'm finding this so invigorating and so helpful. I'm wondering whether you'd be prepared to make a commitment to meet with me maybe once every month or two, you know, to have a more 
formal way where you would be giving me um, some, some mentoring on my career. Don't make it too much of a big deal, but it is a partnership. And just like any relationship, it's a two-way street. So the other side as a mentor myself that I find frustrating is if someone just turns up in my office for their time and they just sit back in the chair and they go, okay, I'm here. And I'm like, great. How can I help? Tell me about what's going on. Oh, you know, just stuff. And I'm like, okay, well, what kind of stuff? Like, so, you know, the mentee's job is to turn up with what they need. Like I'm here and I still do this. When I go to my mentors, I need advice on this. I'm struggling with this. This is a real challenge for me at the moment. And what would you do if you were in this position? Um, So go with what your true agenda is. For some of my very early career people, I actually have them have a, they're pretty used to this now, a, a single page. They divide it into three columns of one is like research projects or clinical areas or domains that they are working on that we have timelines on that we are actually making concrete the concrete projects. I'll put it that way. It's the project column. The middle column is the skill column. So what other skills are we focused on at the moment? It might be manuscript writing, grant writing, presenting, It might be giving bad news to, it might be managing a lab budget. It could be anything. Um, And then the third column is the other column. And in the other column, always at the top, is how am I as a human in my life? And that has to be touched on every session. But then there's always some other things that they want to sort of put in that column, that other column. But it's important to have that other column it's not just about work. There is, and there should be, and there has to be another whole dimension um, that that they can talk about and they may be struggling with. So um, for the early and career people, it's more along that. But that's the mentee's responsibility to update that, to send that to me a day or two before we meet, and then we can cover it and I can be effective for them in guiding So I think that both mentor-mentee relationships are critical, as is networking. And networking can take this kind of, you have to have the courage to step out and you can't expect everybody to come to you. People, Senior people at the conferences aren't going to come up to you and say, oh, I don't think I've met you before. You know, tell me about yourself. I mean, you have to make the reach out. And it's been well noted that women in particular are bad at this that, you know, we don't have the old golf club mentality. And so, you know, you're busy at home with the kids, you've got work, you don't have time to network, but you've got to make the time. It's really important because that peer group in particular will be a lifelong support for you um, to go through. And then finally, sponsorship, which is different, of course, from mentorship, which is when you do get into a position where you can support others, so when I'm asked to give a talk, if I can't give a talk, I'm trying to find someone in, I, in, my, in my hen house who can, you know, give the talk or um, being able to promote people for awards, making sure anytime you see somebody with a, an award request, who do I know who I could nominate? Don't just think, oh, I can't be bothered with that. S- sponsor up, help, help people to get nominated 
it won't always be successful. In fact, most of the time it won't be successful. But but the more you can sponsor others, then the more you'll be helping them develop. As I'm listening to you describe all of this activity, which sounds so fantastic and such such great concrete information for people who are just entering it to really keep in their heads. How do you think that part of the connection, the networking, the, the building each other up, how does that change and impact the more clinical side of things? Oh, I think it's very powerful. So I can tell you this week, I reached out to colleagues in two different cities around the U.S., um, related to babies or children that are in those cities who are either in systems or needing a little bit of an extra hit. Those people know me. They they know that I'm a good human being, and I hope, and that I'm not asking this just to lean on them or be, you know, wielding my Harvard shield. I'm actually, you know, I'm hoping that other people would always know that my door can be you know, open and reached out to at any time for, for, as I say, the response may not be immediate in terms of an hour, but it, it will always be a response. Um, so that network works really well in the clinical domain and that you know other people who can help other families that may be either moving or they may be located in other places. Uh, maybe great aunt Mabel's second cousin who happens to have a child with seizures or something, but but that network helps for that. It also helps you to know who the experts are around the country when you have that difficult case and you're sitting there just going, you know, don't know the answer, can't find the answer in the book or on PubMed. I need to run this by somebody who just it might just click with. And I've got the privilege of being able to do that too. Um, Fortunately, in Boston, we have a lot of expertise. But, you know, it's not uncommon that I'll be reaching out to a different expert around the country for a a weird mitochondrial encephalopathy or an unusual type of um, dysgenesis or something that we just want someone another set of eyes on. Thank you so much for taking this time. Is there any kind of parting words or or last thoughts that you'd like to leave people with today life's a journey it really is a winding road and you never know quite what's around the corner as we've all experienced in the last few years but you can hold on around any tough bend don't be afraid to to think about where you're at now and where do I really want to be and have the courage to use your worth to step into new fields, no matter what stage in your career you're at. I think that sense of knowing that if you're in the right place, keep going and and celebrate yourself. If it doesn't feel quite right, you know, maybe not. The best piece of advice I ever got was when I was an intern doing we do a general internship and I was uh, with a surgeon and I'd just been offered this pediatric slot because somebody else had pulled out I was young I was meant to do another year and I went into this operating room to help the surgeon and I said I don't I don't know what to do I don't know whether I should do this or not I, I don't know if it's the right career for me or not he said just do it and if you love doing it keep doing it and if you don't 
then don't. And it's simple and so important. So we are very privileged for the vast majority of us to do something we love. Keep doing it and take pride in it and find joy in it and find joy in the people around you. And if you're not happy or it's not bringing you joy or you don't feel you're living your purpose, take a bend in the road. Have the courage to go around it because you have so much to offer the world. Thank you so much for sharing all this with us. My pleasure. And thank you so much for inviting me to share. That's an honor in itself. And I hope one little piece may have hit somebody to help. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Small Brains, Big Dreams. My guest today was Dr. Terry Inder. She's the Mary Ellen Avery Professor of Pediatrics at Harvard and Chair of the Department of Pediatric Newborn Medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Small Brains, Big Dreams is presented by the Newborn Brain Society in collaboration with the Canadian Premature Babies Foundation. Connect with us at newbornbrainsociety.org, on Facebook at Newborn Brain Society, and Twitter at Newborn Brains. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate, share, and subscribe.